Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Mike and I talked earlier today. We've got plenty to cover. Um, on oil pricing, not too much to report. Um, the, uh, the Colonial Pipeline uh, getting hacked is the major thing I would say in oil pricing. Um, the uh, I think that North Carolina and whatnot uh, will continue to increase. Um, I hope they can get the most of the system up by the end of the week. Um, shortages of gasoline diesel jet fuel, uh, which gets fast in the system. It's a huge system. Um, they will continue to be short kind of indefinitely because when you miss six or seven days or eight days or however much it'll be down, uh, there's just no way to make it up. Um, that means prices were for gasoline, diesel, jet fuel will be higher than they otherwise would be. It probably means it probably means that even though it makes no logical sense, there'll be an orientation to a somewhat higher oil price. Um, the um, uh, I think for those of us who live in the New York metropolitan area, we have some protection because it's a lot easier to reach uh, New York Harbor uh, with barges or, or, or product ships from Europe. So I think more of the dislocation will be down in the southeast where they don't have that same access. I saw a uh, an article uh, or commentary about uh, doing a lot of trucking. I mean, there will be trucks used, but I mean, there's no way to replace the amount of product that comes up the colonial system uh, with trucks. And, and, and we'll be a little protected here in the in the New York metropolitan area because of barges and and uh, price ships from Europe, but or, or or for that matter from the Gulf Coast, but uh, you know it still is going to have an enormous impact. Um, on natural gas pricing, it's surprisingly strong. Uh, I don't really understand. Didn't expect it. Um, the other remarkable thing is that. Uh, LNG, which whether you measure it in, in uh, Japan, Korea, China, or North Asia, whatever you want to call it, the JKM index, uh, or Europe, uh, they're generally about a dollar apart. In other words, LNG will command a dollar more in uh, North Asia than it will in Europe. Um, was like $4 in July of 2020, went to $30. Uh, Spike in January, got back down to five and a half or so by April, and somehow has worked its way back to nine, maybe nine fifty now. I thought it was just having seen it come off the peak in January. I thought it was just going to continue down. We'd see four or five dollars in uh, in July. <clears throat> What's happening here is that say eighty percent of all the volumes are are uh, based on prices related to crude. 
uh, used to be about 15% of crude. Now on the renewed contracts, it's about 10% of crude. So with Brent, you know, in the 69 range, that'd be 650 or so. Um, uh, on the increment, um, whether you're Kogas, who buys LNG for all of Korea, or someone who's not that quite a substantial uh, user, uh, on the margin, the traders do one of two things. If they're short, they go out and bid for cargoes. If they're long, they sell the cargoes into the spot market. So the volatility in LNG is going to be there no matter what happens, I think. The tricky thing from assessing what this means for U.S. gas pricing is when the spot price got as low as $4 in July of 2020, LNG exports were like seven versus a nameplate capacity of 11. Of course, as the price improved, we went back to 11, and we're still at 11. But you do lose, you can lose three or four Bs of of, of natural gas demand um, uh, to, um, to that kind of volatility in the LNG market. So it's kind of a happy event, I think, that rather than marching down towards Five dollars or four dollars or five dollars in July. Suddenly, it spiked to nine or ten. Um, when I ask around or try to read uh, Platt's newsletters and whatnot to figure out what's going on, I think it's as simple as a couple of LNG trains, which are pretty difficult to keep up. Once they're up, they run seven days a week, twenty-four hours a day. I, I just think, especially in Australia, a couple of trains had some operating issues and came down, and that was enough to move the spot market up. So I don't know that it's indicative of anything more than that. Um, so I think it's positive for natural gas in the U.S., but I, you know, I don't know whether you can count on it prevailing. Um, in terms of how oil and gas stocks are behaving, um, the there's big stress on dividends. Um, EOG did an extra dollar dividend. There's kind of a discussion going on with upstream companies uh, that have their debt down to like one year of cash flow, where the right dividend is to manage your dividend so it goes up, say, 8 or 9, 10% a year, or should you do that plus do an, a special dividend? I personally think the special dividend is, the way to, is not the way to go. That's what Devon calls or Pioneer calls a variable dividend. I think that's a cop-out. But EOG, who has been specialized in keeping their capex at uh, two-thirds of their cash flow, uh, and the, what capital markets want to see if you're going to increase their, your dividend eight, nine, ten percent a year, they want to see you being able to increase your unit production. So, by that amount, uh, that compound rate. So, if you're if you're only spending two-thirds of your cash flow and trying to get uh, something approaching ten percent production growth. That is very, very, very high performance. That that'll be that'll put you in certainly in the top quartile, maybe maybe higher in terms of performance of everyone operating upstream in the U.S. Um, the uh, but those clearly are the companies you want to own. They trade at a premium, but that's where that's where you want to be. You may see 
a spike if you're in a company that where debt is two or three times cash flow. And because commodity pricing has improved for oil and gas, uh, they go up. But the place, if you want to buy one of these companies and hold it through the cycles, you want the one that has the debt down to one times cash flow. That's that would be uh, that would be Pioneer. That would be uh, EOG. That would be Cabot. Uh, the others, which have a little more close to two times, would be Diamondback, Simrex. Uh, uh, Magnolia is kind of on the fence, but doesn't pay a dividend yet. Um, uh, Antero's made enormous progress getting their debt down. Had a fantastic first quarter. Um, but they're still a ways away from one times. EQT is kind of in the same mode. So um, uh, will you get these cheaper because oil pricing is going to go down or gas pricing is going to go down? Maybe. But uh, I'm pretty well through the first quarter reports, and every everyone did pretty well. Um, the uh, <clears throat> Mike and I plan for foreseeable future to uh, cover two companies. Uh, I want to cover one and a half companies uh, today. Uh, I spoke about Goldman Sachs last week. I don't have too much to add to uh, our discussion of Goldman Sachs. However, very interesting thing happened this week or was reported this week. The Malaysians where it was just embarrassing Goldman Sachs, you know, was kind of bound to be colluding with the with this crook from Malaysia and, and it wound up costing Goldman Sachs reputation and five or six billion dollar settlement. Um, the government of Malaysia sued JP Morgan and Deutsche Bank for a lot of money. I mean you can put any amount in the suit you want, but for twenty five billion dollars. So it wasn't just Goldman Sachs that, you know, was misbehaving with these uh, people who purported to represent the government of Malaysia. But then took the proceeds and bought, you know, large, large ocean going boats and jewelry and paintings and whatnot. So um, uh, not so good for J.P. Morgan and Deutsche Bank. Not, not, not to say that that makes Goldman Sachs' behavior here acceptable because it wasn't. And if you read Goldman Sachs' uh, <coughs> uh, CEO letters, I mean, they 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 just feel that. This is something that never should have happened there. Plus, it was pretty expensive to settle, but it is it is behind them. On CarMax, I spent some, I discussed last week. I spent some more time looking at CarMax, and really, it's done well. Um, but there's no question that Carvana and the other um, used car operations that say ordered over the internet will bring it to your driveway. Uh, a, a car, if you're buying a car. If you want to sell your car, uh, tell us over the internet the model and send us some pictures, and we'll send someone to pick up the car with a uh, with a certified check. Um, CarMax has to deal with this, and I think as CarMax does that, I think they'll be fine. In fact, as the virus becomes less prevalent, uh, you know, I think there will be a tendency for people to want to go look at a few cars rather than buy one over the internet. Um, but uh, they're also, to compete with competition, to protect their market position, I think their margins will be somewhat lower. So I see CarMax, if I had to guess, having kind of flat cash flow. Now, they do 
they do <laughs> retain an awful lot of cash flow. Um, I mean, they're, they're pre-tax, pre-interest cash flow already, but uh, less capex is regularly running in the eight or nine hundred million range. It's pretty darn good for a company that that uh, you know has 160 million shares outstanding trading for 120 or something. You know, like a, you know 16, 17 billion dollar uh, uh, market cap. But if you've always wanted to own Carmax, and I've owned it for a long time, very happy, you might get it cheaper over the next couple of quarters as they cope with these uh, people who are competing. The one that I'd like to, and I don't want to use any more in a couple more minutes and maybe have some additional comments next week. I've always said that Fastenal is fantastic business. If you had the presence, and these are spectacular numbers, if you had the presence of mind to buy <clears throat> a thousand shares of Fastenal stock when it came public 30 years ago, you now have between dividends and and uh, current value of your stock, you now have about $6 million. In other words, $9,000 turned into $6 million. That's about a 30% compound rate of return over 30 years. Uh, just a remarkable story. I mean, if you think about your investing, if you only own a dozen stocks most of the time and you just have three or four of them do that, you know, you really become quite well off from your investing. Um, I've always thought, I, I bought Fastenal stock, I've kind of aware of it for a long time, but I bought it in 08, 09 when it was quite inexpensive. And it's a great company and it's probably about been a market performer up from the lows in 08. Every time I think, hey, this is mature, uh, you ought to think about selling it, you ought to be able to find something else to invest in. Uh, I don't have numbers all the way back to 08, but I, I'm looking at a chart with numbers from 2011. I mean, in in the period from 2011 to 2020, let's say a 10-year period, it doubled its revenues from around 2.8 billion to 5.6 billion. Uh, it took its net income from 350 million to 840 million. Uh, it paid out enormous amount of dividends over that period. Um, the, uh, I mean, it's been paying dividends at the rate of around, uh, I guess it's average 350 million a year. So it's paid out over the 10 year period, three and a half billion dollars. Um, the stock price, uh, 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 is, uh, was 21, uh, 10 years ago. It's now about 50. Um, as I say, you know, a little bit disappointing, but you did get the dividend. And every time I think, hey, it's kind of mature. Um, why don't uh, why don't you sell it and find something else? I have trouble finding something else, and I already have cash, so I continue on fast well. Also, I'm just so impressed every time I pick it up and look at it. For example, I mean, what they're selling is fasteners uh, after the name. You know, saw blades, uh, cleaning supplies. Uh, they, <clears throat> they actually have fewer stores than they had 10 years ago. 10 years ago, they had 2,600 stores. Now they have 2,100. During that period, they have uh, used technology to substantially increase their their uh, their customer uh, capability. What they do for strong customers now is they 
maintain an inventory on your site and they don't bill you until you use the inventory and they have systems all kinds of fairly high-tech systems where they replace the inventory as 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 you use it and bill you for it so it's it's really a pretty impressive performance um the uh, it's based in a little town in um, in minnesota uh it is um um uh, you know, its dividend goes up every year. Um, uh, just really a superb business. Uh, is it investable at 50? Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's, I think, only, you know, about a 3% free cash yield, 3 or 4% free cash yield uh, with the dividend that uh, is, uh, is, uh, I mean, ten years ago the dividend was thirty-two cents. Now it's a dollar twelve. It's up three times in ten years. I mean, that's I don't know a ten or twelve percent compound increase in the dividend. Um, I just don't know. What what I do think is that these are the kind of businesses you want to own, and uh, the fact that they don't have much debt, that they increase their dividend every year, and that they are really uh, very effective competitor. Now, just to give you a for instance, in the pandemic, uh, obviously their business is going to be down. Their customer base or contractors and manufacturing businesses and whatnot. So they made a specialty out of doing masks and sanitizer and whatnot. And so they had a very strong pandemic. In fact, if you look at their first quarter report 2021, uh, their business is slowing down a little because people don't need as much of that type of equipment. And with the economy still recovering, the rest of their business, their traditional business, hasn't picked up as quickly, but still a superb business. I would say, sitting here on the phone, a model for what you want to own. That's not necessarily something to uh, something to come into at this price. And with that, over to Mike. Now, I tell Mike what 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 we want him to do is in his area of expertise is find us some fastballs that go up. Uh, you know, compound at 30% a year for 30 years. So with that as an introduction, over to you, Mike. Thanks, hon. And that's uh, certainly a high bar to reach, but we will continue to keep trying to find those kind of deals. Um, I've got two that I want to talk about today. Um, and maybe if we have a few minutes left at the end, we'll talk a little bit about the, the CPI number that came in um, just yesterday or today. Um, okay, so the first one I've got is Dish Network, and we, we've talked quite a bit about 5G uh, over the past couple of months, all the way into probably close to this time last year. Uh, we've looked at T-Mobile, uh, felt like it was pretty expensive. We, um, we looked at some of the equipment providers. Uh, so I, I've done the full, full gamut, and one of the names that keeps popping up that had got continually more interesting the farther I dug was Dish Network. Um, so, and and so let those, me just interject. I mean, one of the companies uh, we looked at was Qualcomm. And and uh, is Qualcomm just, I mean, where's the law on Qualcomm before we get into Dish, do you think? I'm sorry, or do you, you think, it, or do you, you Qualcomm, yeah. Where, in terms of 5G, where is the flaw in Qualcomm, do you think? I mean, or, I don't. I don't know that there's necessarily a flaw in Qualcomm other than that they have very high revenue concentration risk. 
So they don't have that many customers. And because of that, uh, one, I guess there's two two sides of the coin. If they lost I'm, one I'm customer, Apple, I'm Apple, like I'm Apple, Apple dispute is a big deal. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. So losing well, sorry a customer. For the, it, sorry, sorry for the interruption on the Dish Network. But no, it's okay. 5G, I, I couldn't help but say, what about Qualcomm? Because the Qualcomm CEO seems to think that 5G adoption is kind of a complete news cycle for them. But, you know, that's what he's supposed to think. He's running the business. And and I I have a, I do sort of, I'm fond of him, if only because he went to my alma mater. So, uh, so, so yeah, so I'm a big fan of Qualcomm. I have not pulled the trigger as far as owning shares myself, but um, they're based here in San Diego. So I know a handful of people that work there. It's a very interesting company. Um, but yeah, on to, on to Dish Network. Um, Dish Network's a complicated business. They, they operate a satellite TV business. Um, so rural areas where you can't get cable, you might get Dish Network for TV. They've got a streaming business called Sling.com um, or Sling TV, where you can stream channels directly to your home via whatever your internet service provider is. They're also an internet reseller. They have a satellite partnership with HughesNet. They've got cable DSL and fiber partnerships with a number of different um, internet companies, uh, ISPs. They're also a mobile operator. They purchased Boost Mobile from Sprint when, uh, as part of the, the deal for the T-Mobile Sprint merger. Um, and they just recently acquired another uh, MVNO called Republic Wireless. So Dish has this collection of what I, I kind of think the, the analysts that cover the stock see it as this like kind of mixed bag of assets. Um, and I'm going to go through kind of what their strategy is on 5G and try to make sense of it. And, and I, I kind of think it makes sense of the rest of, um, of all the stuff they have. And it, uh, with 5G, it kind of makes the whole package make more sense, if you will. Um, so it's no uh, no secret that Dish has been acquiring Spectrum. They're one of the largest Spectrum 5G Spectrum holders. They have some um, reportedly very high quality Spectrum for the purposes of long distance, um, being able to, to space out your towers and have high throughput. Um, they, they very recently uh, made an announcement where they're going to utilize Amazon Web Services uh, to operate a virtual network. Um, so that's another kind of interesting twist because their go-to-market is going to be very different than uh, Verizon or AT&T, who um, have a lot of leg legacy equipment, a lot of debt financing, um, and a lot of depreciation associated with that equipment, and then a lot of work to uh, to upgrade and maintain it. So. So, so that's what we got. We've got an AWS announcement. We have an announcement that Las Vegas is going to be the first city to go live. Um, it's well known that Dish, both Dish Network and Amazon are uh, uh, big NFL uh, promoters. Uh, Amazon having all the rights to Thursday Night Football for the next uh, next 
uh, I think 10 or 11 years, and then uh, DISH has a similar net, uh, agreement for uh, the delivery via their over-the-top TV service. Um, so, so yeah, so we, that Las Vegas. What uh, is uh, over-the-top? What is, is that? What they call Sling TV? Uh, sorry, yeah. Uh, so, so I and by over the top, I really meant the satellite business, um, and then also right. I, it's available via Sling, as far as I know. Right. Um, right. So, and, so and how, is, how is Sling TV? How is Sling TV delivered? Good question. So is it's delivered it, over the internet. It is delivered over the internet. So, uh, the the and the interesting thing that we get into. When you look at those assets, right? TV, internet, phone, um, adding the 5G network to it doesn't actually change that business strategy that much. It provides a, a modern path to higher throughput and better services and more, more potential customer opportunities, but it doesn't actually change their business. So I guess the whole point of what I'm trying to say is this 5G launch from my perspective is less risky than most people are assuming because they already have the business infrastructure in place, meaning TV, internet, and mobile phone operations. And they're just going to be adding a 5G network on top of this set of, of assets. Hmm. Um, isn't there a, isn't there, I've got to get myself up the curve on dish, but isn't there a founder here who's kind of a, um, I, um, um, a kind of, uh, I'll go my own way kind of entrepreneur. Yeah. Uh, Char Charlie E. Uh, Ergen, I believe is yeah. his name. Right. Right. Um, right. And I, again, trying to, uh, trying to piece it together, the, the, a lot of people thought the company was just trying to sit on a bunch of net, uh, of, of the 5g, uh, uh bandwidth in hopes that it would get acquired, but it appears and things are starting to come together to show that there is a really cohesive strategy here. It's just taken a while to come together. Um, maybe hopefully strategically um, some of it by chance, but certainly this Amazon partnership has the potential to, to really make them have a competitive advantage from the network operations perspective, which that there's a tailwind here too, because the FCC wants a fourth player. Part of the deal for the T-Mobile Sprint merger was that, um, well, first of all, that that Sprint would sell Boost Mobile to to Dish and allow Boost Mobile to run as a mobile virtual network on top of the T-Mobile network. Um, but also was that Dish was given additional time to build, extended their the the time to build out their global 5G or national 5G network. So, um, so, so there's a lot of people that want them to succeed. Uh, competition is relatively tight, but with, with just three players, I think there's more than enough opportunity. I also think that uh, it, in the world of IoT and additional bandwidth and additional um, types of applications that we're gonna be able to utilize these faster speeds, it's going to be it'll be harder for them to screw the, this up than it will be for them uh, to do it do it well yeah. what does what does 5g do to satellite i mean do you need to have access to uh, uh wire in order to make 5g work or or yes yeah, so 
so the 5G, you can deliver 5G to home. And actually a few months ago, I tried out the T-Mobile 5G direct home, where you essentially just have a, a home modem that you plug into your wall and immediately you get 5G uh, wireless service delivered to your home and then broadcast via Wi-Fi. Um, the speeds are incredible, uh, faster than what I can buy as a fixed line option. So uh, now to loop that back to satellite, they're gonna serve two different markets because satellite is really only effective for people that live um, outside of cell phone coverage area. So that universe is getting smaller and smaller every day. Um, furthermore, Starlink, uh, Elon Musk's uh, SpaceX venture for uh, satellite internet is providing a better, faster uh, satellite internet solution um, than anything else that's available. And the way he does that is by having a lot of satellites up there? That's correct. So it's it's called a LEO network, a low earth right. orbit satellite constellation. And I forget how many satellites they have, but hundreds. I would assume it's, I think it's 200. Yeah. yeah, yeah, hundreds, I think. Uh, the technology is and very cool. It, it has essentially a laser on the satellite that I believe points at the actual um, receiver. So if you if you were to put one of these things on your house, it will communicate directly by a pointed beam to the satellite, which is fascinating. Yeah. Can you upload on that laser beam or is it just yeah. download? Yeah, yeah, it's 2A um, and it's fast. Um, I believe it's over 100 megabits a second and people that are using it today are uh, are getting five to 600. So it'll, it'll get congested like most networks do as they add users, but um, it will be uh, a pretty exciting thing for for the rural communities. Also, another one to think about is uh, ships for their communication. Right. right now, they spend a lot of money yeah. on very slow internet connections. Yeah, and you used to, when you lived in Newport, you were in that business, right? I was, so I worked for KVH, which uh, they provide, uh, they operate a global network of satellites for, for ships and yachts. So they, what they do is they contract space on existing satellites so that they can have sufficient bandwidth to support the users on their network. Um, I, I've been, it's been a while since I've been there, so I have no idea if they're, they're I, I would guess they're right. probably already talking to the Starlink guys. Right, right. Okie doke, well, we've run out of runway without hearing your second one, but I only had <laughs> one new one this year, this week too. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.